great, and you are greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. That is, we don't understand it. We don't see it in its fullness, but we declare that you are great today. Forgive us for not seeing and understanding your greatness like we should. Forgive us for not praising you for the greatness we do see, you have revealed. And Lord, forgive us for not pursuing your greatness, proclaiming your greatness like we should. Teach us to know you as great and worship you as great and live lives that reflect your greatness. We pray that as we open your word now that you would reveal yourself to us. Reveal your glory, your power, your majesty. and Reveal your will for our lives. Reveal your desires for us. God, I pray that we would not be mere hearers, but that we would be doers of your word, that we would be obeyers, that we would do what you say, because we love you, because you're great, and because you're worthy of our obedience. Lord, teach us to set our eyes on things above. Teach us to set our eyes on things to come. Teach us to live in light of all that you have promised to be for us. We need your help now. We admit that we are in need and desperate for your help. Illumine our eyes, illumine our hearts that we might see wonderful things in your word. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Plant your word deep in us that it might shape and fashion us after your likeness. We pray you do all these things because you are great and for your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Grab a Bible and turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We've been making our way through the book of James, and this is the second to last message on the book of James. The plan is to cover verses 7 through 12 this morning, and then God willing, finish the book of James Next Sunday, verses 13 through the end of the book. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. What a privilege it is to read God's Word over you this morning, to proclaim it to us. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the Word of God. May God burn its truth on our hearts. Well, The second coming of Jesus Christ is one of the most pervasive doctrines in the Bible. 
There are over 300 references to the return of Jesus in the New Testament alone. And the emphasis of the vast majority of the references to Jesus coming again is in the way in which we as Christians should live in hopeful expectation of the return of the Savior. The, vast, the emphasis of the vast majority of the references to the second coming is about how it should impact our everyday lives, how it should impact our lives in this world. The second coming of Jesus is supposed to make a difference in how we think and live and talk and wait. We are to live a certain kind of life because we know that our King is coming again. This truth is so basic, and yet our tendency is to focus on other things about the second coming of Jesus. Remember last year when we went through the book of Revelation, we talked about this at some length, but our Christian culture is fascinated today with the end times. If you want to sell a bunch of books or pack out a conference, you just have to advertise today that you have secrets of the second coming. People are fixated on the timing of Christ's coming and the events surrounding the coming's the coming of Christ. And these are certainly important things to discuss. When Christ is coming and what will happen surrounding it, that's stuff that the Bible does tell us about. However, the Bible's emphasis, overwhelming emphasis, regarding the coming of the Lord in power and great glory is in the sanctifying effect it should have in our lives right now. Knowledge of Jesus' return to earth is meant to be of help to our everyday Christian walk. Listen to a few passages. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks about the certainty of Jesus coming, and then he says this. He says, since all these things are true, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Therefore, behold, or therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Jesus speaks of the certainty of his coming again, and then he issues this command. I am coming again, and then he says, be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. The doctrine of Jesus' second coming is immensely practical for our Christian lives. And in James 5, we see that James understood and taught the importance of the second coming of Jesus for our everyday lives. He bases his exhortations in this passage in the fact of the return of Jesus. Now, last week we saw this in verses 1-5. through five. James has this strong warning to the wealthy. And we saw the point there is that it is foolish to store up riches or to live in luxury in light of the coming of Jesus to judge. And in our passage this morning, James urges us then to endure in godliness, waiting for the coming of our judge, for he would judge the living and the dead. The justice of our God that's going to be realized at the second coming of Jesus is meant to be an encouragement to remain steadfast in the midst of the suffering and the difficulty of this life. In verse 4, last week we saw that the rich landowners were oppressing their workers 
and not paying them their wages. They were withholding what they should have paid them. And beginning in verse 7, James urges those who were being oppressed to find hope in the fact that Jesus is coming and His coming is soon. It is near. In fact, notice the word therefore in verse 7, tying this exhortation to what He's just said. You're being oppressed. You're being mistreated. But, or therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And so I see at least three commands in this passage based on the second coming of Jesus. Three exhortations that James gives us here because we know that Jesus is coming again. And we're going to focus most of our time on the first one because it's the one that James emphasizes here. So three commands based on the second coming. Here's the first one. Number one, the judge is coming, therefore be patient. The judge is coming, therefore be patient. Now clearly the main exhortation of this passage is that our lives are to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit called patience. No less than seven times in these verses, we are exhorted to be patient. Just look at them with me. Let me highlight all seven instances. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast or patient. And then he says, you have heard of the steadfastness, the patience of Job. Also closely related to this idea to be patient, to be steadfast, is the command in verse 8 to establish your hearts. This is actually a powerful word picture in verse 8. The verb to establish means to tie something down so as to secure it against possible disaster. I lived on the, the coast, we would always be concerned about hurricanes, and when hurricanes were coming, you had to tie stuff down. You had to put stuff in a secure place where it wouldn't be able to be tossed around. And he says, he says, tie your hearts down. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord. Though tempted to impatience, we are to stand firm and tie our hearts in faithfulness to Jesus in anticipation of His coming. In other words, we are to anchor our hearts in Jesus. That's what it means to be patient. The reason James emphasizes the command to be patient and to endure is because in the face of injustice and oppression and suffering, our temptation is to be what? Our temptation is to be impatient, right? Our temptation is to take matters into our own hands, to unanchor ourselves, if you will. Listen to what John Piper says about the sin of impatience. This is from his excellent book called Battling Unbelief. He says, impatience is a form of unbelief. 
It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. He says it springs up in our hearts when our plan is interrupted or shattered. It may be prompted by a long wait in a checkout line or a sudden blow that knocks out half our dreams. He says the opposite of impatience is not a glib denial of loss. Rather, it's a deepening, widening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience. To wait in His place and to go at His pace. That's helpful to me. This is what patience is. This is the opposite of impatience. To wait in God's place and to go at His pace. When God does not act according to our timetable, our temptation is to grow impatient and discontent, right? And so James is serving us in this passage by reminding us of God's coming justice. God, he says, will punish evil and wickedness. God will punish those who wrong us, those who oppress us. We can have patience. We can wait in His place and go at His pace because we are confident that Jesus is coming again and He will bring justice to the earth. Now, James does not just exhort us to patience in this passage, but notice he also gives us not one, not two, but three examples of patience to encourage us, to show us what patience means. First, James gives us the example of the farmer in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, into the coming of the Lord... See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? What a fantastic illustration. Now we've, I've said this before, but I love James's illustrations. Throughout this book, just go back and read it again and look for all of his illustrations. This is a fantastic one right here. You know why this is such a fantastic illustration? Because there are no shortcuts to farming especially in James's day, right? There's no way to speed up the rain. There's no way to control the outcome of the crop. The farmer knows he has to be completely patient for the precious fruit of the crop. If he grows impatient, if the farmer grows impatient and he tries to hurry the crops along, he'll ruin the produce. And in the same way, we are to be patient, knowing that the Lord has a perfect timetable, Our job is not to hurry God's schedule along so that it somehow matches with our schedule. No, our job is to endure, knowing that God is indeed in control of the rain and He's in control of the harvest. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See the farmer? See how the farmer waits? Wait in that way. The second example is in verse 10. James says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So James calls upon the example of the Old Testament prophets. Another fantastic illustration. Because just a cursory reading of the Old Testament reveals that it was the true prophets, the faithful prophets, who were always being persecuted and oppressed. And it was the false prophets who were often well received by God's people, right? The false prophets spoke 
positive things. They spoke blessing and they refused to give the negative messages to God's people. So they were loved, they were received, but the true prophets, the ones who spoke God's word, they were hated and despised. Those who spoke the truth of God's justice to God's people were constantly persecuted. Now, I don't think James has any particular prophet in mind here. All of them suffered in that way. In fact, in the book of Acts, just before Stephen was stoned, he says this to those who were about to stone him. He says, was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? You were none of them. You persecuted all of them. So I don't think James has a particular prophet in mind, but this makes me think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah spent years, decades really, declaring God's word to God's people. And all through his life, he was constantly in danger of people persecuting him and suffering. In fact, in Jeremiah 38, the people threw him into a muddy cistern and left him to starve to death because of the message that he proclaimed to them. Well, then they finally came to rescue him from the cistern. What did Jeremiah do? He continued to speak God's word to the king and to the people without regard for his own life. What incredible endurance and steadfastness not to give up, to press on, to keep going decade after decade of nothing but negative responses. Friends, are you ready to follow Jesus in this world, even if it means nothing but suffering from here on out? Are you ready to follow Jesus, even if it means people will oppose you, ridicule you, and persecute you and harm you? Oh God, give us the patience and endurance of the prophets. The third example James gives here is that of Job in verse 11. Notice he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate, how the Lord is merciful. Now again, Job is a fantastic illustration of patience in suffering. Everything was taken from Job, and I mean everything. His family, his wealth, his health, even his own wife wanted to curse God. However, Job never gave up. He trusted to the end. And notice what James wants us to focus on in Job's example. What is it? He says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. The word translated purpose there is the word for goal. God had a goal for Job. You've seen God's goal for this suffering man. There was a purpose to it. There was an intentionality to it, James says. James here focuses on God's compassion and God's mercy to Job. Literally, James is saying here, it was compassion, it was mercy from God that Job suffered and was ultimately restored. It was God's compassion and His mercy to Job that caused him to endure all that suffering. Could you have endured all that Job experienced with faith? Or would you have been tempted to impatience to that kind of suffering? As Christians, thank God that we know because Jesus accomplished all of our salvation, He did it in our place, died and laid down His life for our sins. We know because of that that God is compassionate and merciful to us all the time. No matter what we experience in this life, we can be sure that like Job, the Lord is compassionate and the Lord is merciful. Friends, lack of patience is something we all struggle with. God often calls us in Scripture to wait 
on Him. Waiting on God is this spiritual discipline that we all need to cultivate at every stage in our lives. To wait in His place and to go at His pace. But friends, we don't wait alone. And we don't wait for no purpose. God promises to bless those who are patient, who endure to the end. Verse 11 says, those who remain steadfast are blessed. Lamentations 3.25 says, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him. Isaiah 40 says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The promises of God for the patient are rich and they are abundant. And friends, patience is not attractive to the world. Patience often looks like weakness. Patience often looks like inaction to the world. But oh, friends, our God says patience, waiting, is always what we are called to do. Until the coming of the Lord, be patient, endure where in your life are you being called to patience and to wait on the Lord? Where in your particular life are you being called to wait on the Lord? Is there a particular suffering that you're being called to endure? James says, be patient. Is there a particular injustice that you're experiencing? Be patient. Is there a particular dream that goes unfulfilled year after year after year? Be patient. Is there a particular burden you have for an unsaved family member or friend? Be patient, brothers. Establish your hearts. And notice how long we're to be patient. James says, be patient. How long? Until the coming of the Lord. Ultimately, we wait for the second coming of Jesus. Because it is at the coming of Jesus in power and great glory that God's plan of redemption will be finally and fully fulfilled. Friends, let me remind you, we're not waiting on a particular political party or candidate to take office. We're not waiting for some military maneuver to free us from the fear of terrorism or war. We're not waiting for our financial portfolio to mature or for the market to bounce back. We're not waiting for those who have wronged us to pay us back or to get what they deserve from the legal system. We're not waiting for the check to be in the mail that will finally solve all our problems. We're not waiting for the medical report to give us the news that we are healed. We are waiting for one thing, ultimately. We are waiting for the Savior to rescue us from this sin-stained world. We can be patient in any and every situation because we know He's coming again. And in His coming, He will alleviate all our misery. Fill in this blank for yourself and your family. Fill in this blank for you. What is this for you? I can blank, I can endure blank because I know Jesus is coming back. I can endure this thing that looks like no one can endure this. I can endure this thing because I know Jesus is coming back. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Beloved, in this world, it might seem like the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. 
We will undergo persecution for our faith. We will endure opposition and trouble around every corner. But James says you must know this. God is not done settling His accounts. Payday has not yet arrived. There is coming a day when God will judge the world in righteousness. And we can be patient because we know that. Because we know that our Savior is both just and compassionate and merciful. James says, be patient, brothers, knowing that the judge is standing at the door. Be patient because you know the coming of the Lord is near. So anchor your hearts. Establish your hearts. Hold firm to your position. Wait in His place and go at His pace. Well, here's the second exhortation of this passage. James says, the judge is coming... Therefore, don't grumble against one another. The judge is coming. Therefore, don't grumble against one another. Notice the command in verse 9. James says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So in light of the second coming of Jesus, Christians are not to grumble against one another. James says we're not to grumble so that we are not judged. So evidently, grumbling and complaining against each other is a serious offense to God. To grumble means to murmur. It means to blame. It means to uncharitably criticize someone else. And when we grumble against one another, we are not loving one another as Jesus has loved us. In our love for one another, we are to speak well of one another. We're to outdo one another in showing honor with our words. Now, James has already dealt extensively with sins of the tongue in this letter. And grumbling is another of those ways that we sin with our tongue. In fact, this command is very similar to what James has already said in chapter 4, verse 11, where he said, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So, we are to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. And while we wait, while we endure, we are not to grumble against one another. Now, James is writing to people who've been oppressed. They've been wronged. And our natural tendency when we're wrong is to look for someone else to blame for our troubles. We're often, of guilt, we're often guilty of thinking it's someone else's fault that we're in the situation that we find ourselves in. I think this is a particular temptation in a local church. When problems arise between people in a local church, we're especially prone to begin blame-shifting, grumbling against one another, unhelpfully criticizing one another. This is a universal human tendency to assume that our problems are someone else's faults. Friends, unity in the body of Christ will never come where there is sinful grumbling and uncharitable criticizing going on. So we must guard against this temptation to blame each other as we wait, as we endure the troubles and struggles of this life. The judge is standing at the door. That is, he's listening to our conversations. Jesus could come back at any moment. Do you want Jesus to come just at that point when you are sinfully murmuring against someone else? That's James's point. Don't grumble because the judge could walk in the door at any moment. Many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions. Marshall mentioned those just a couple weeks ago. 
Well, his 31st resolution was this. Resolved. Never to say anything at all against anybody, but only what is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule. You see, grumbling against one another is proof that we think way too highly of ourselves. What would it be like to resolve to not grumble against one another? To only speak of one another with a sense of our own faults and failings at the forefront of our minds? What would it be like to resolve never to speak negatively against others? The judge is coming, James says. Therefore, do not grumble against one another. The third and the final exhortation that I want to highlight in this passage is this. Number three, the judge is coming. Therefore, speak with integrity. The judge is coming. Therefore, speak with integrity. Look at verse 12. James says, but above all, my brothers, and I don't think he means like this is the most important of them all. I think he's just saying, and, and, and finally, or, or, and also, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. At first glance, verse 12 seems sort of unrelated to the context of this passage. In fact, some commentators treat verse 12 just all by itself. I actually heard one preacher say that it seems like James just forgot to write this earlier in the letter, and so he just randomly throws it in at this point. I think a better way to see verse 12 is in the context here of the judgment of God. Right? James is giving yet another command related to our holiness to our purity when Jesus returns to earth. Notice James says not to swear so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so that's what ties it to what we just studied. Verse 9, James says not to grumble so that we won't be judged. In verse 12, James says to speak with integrity so we will not be judged when Jesus returns. So here's another way that our tongues get us in trouble. Swearing, oath-taking, and breaking our promises. So what exactly is James forbidding in verse 12? Well, the first thing we need to say is that James is simply restating here something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His footstool. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. You see, in New Testament times, the religious people had developed this entire system of swearing by things to add weight to what they were saying, to their promises. And it had gotten way out of hand, where some oaths were binding and other oaths were not, depending on what you swore by. And you sort of had to know the formula to to know what someone was saying. And James and Jesus are simply saying, just speak the truth. Allow your speaking to be done with integrity and honesty. Let what you say be the truth. Let what you say be what you're going to do. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our temptations, in the midst of our oppressions, there's no need to make lofty promises that we cannot fulfill. It is better to just speak plainly 
and honestly than to heap up all these oaths that mean absolutely nothing. Beloved, our truthfulness should be so consistent, should be so dependable, that we don't need an oath to support it. People should be able to take our words at face value. Our yes should mean yes. And our no should mean no. And so are you known as a person of integrity? Can people count on you to mean what you say? In light of Jesus coming to judge, James urges us to speak with absolute truthfulness at all times. So in summary, James gives us three commands. To live in light of Jesus' second coming, we should be patient. Establish your hearts. Anchor yourselves. Do not grumble against one another. And speak always with integrity. So James is urging us to live in light of the day when we stand in the presence of the judge of the universe. Let your living and your speaking be done in such a way that you do it in light of that day. You stand before the judge of all. Another one of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions was this. He said, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. In other words, Edwards did not engage in anything that would be considered foolish if Jesus were to come back within the hour. Another way to say that would be to say, live as if you believe the judge is standing at the door. Live as if you believe the judge is standing at the door. There's an urgency to James's exhortation here. He says the Lord is at hand. His coming is near. And we're to live with that constant expectation that Jesus might come in the next hour. At Jesus' second coming, He will bring reward and blessing to those who patiently endured in this life. For those who are fully trusting in Jesus, Jesus will bring eternal salvation For believers, the second coming is not something that we fear. It's something we anticipate with joy because the judge is also our Savior who died in our place and took the condemnation that we deserve. But friends, please hear this. At Jesus' second coming, He will punish all those who have not trusted in Him. For those who refuse to embrace Him as Lord and Savior, Jesus will bring eternal condemnation. So I urge you this morning, every one of you, turn from your unbelief, turn from your sin, and treasure the judge as your Savior this morning. Philippians 2 tells us that when Jesus comes, every knee will bow before Him. Every knee. And James tells us that day is coming soon. So will you bow on that day in joyful submission? Or will you bow in forced submission? One way or the other, you're going to bow. So why not willingly bow today in humble adoration of the coming judge? Revelation chapter 22, the whole book ends with Jesus saying, I'm coming soon. And John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Amen, Lord Jesus. Come, Maranatha, Lord, come. We long for you to come and set all wrongs right long for you to take your rightful seat, the throne of the universe, and reign over all that you have created. Oh God, we long for that day when you will be seen as the glorious judge of all.
And I pray for my friends in this room who are not trusting in Jesus, who may be playing games, who may be thinking that they are trusting you and they know, they know in their hearts they're not. Oh God, I pray that you would draw them to repentance today. You would help them to see the glory, the beauty of the Savior and they would repent and trust in Jesus. Oh God, I pray you do your work in our hearts this day. You'd prepare us for that glorious day and the last trump shall sound and the heavens are split open and Jesus comes. Thank you for reminding us that you're standing at the door. Help us to live lives that please you in light of the coming of Jesus. We worship you. We celebrate you. We trust you. We wait in your place at your pace. Help us, please. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.